The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I think you know that when you preach the Word of God, you desire that word or text or few verses that the sermon might be pointed upon to be in context. You've all heard that many times, that we not just pluck a, a verse out and uh, say, well, here's what I think it means. We have to look at it in light of the setting that it occurs. Now, I have a, there's a huge problem this morning that maybe you're not aware of, but I surely am. It's a problem with the clock, because if I would give you context for Romans 11, 33 to 36, what I have to do is go back and start at Romans 1, 1, and read from there through Romans 11, 32. And by the time I accomplish that, I think it would be about 12.30, and you all would have left. Just one by one, you would have filtered out, and then I would start the sermon. I cannot possibly give you the context by reading it, but I ask you to recall what you know of Romans and the great doctrinal chapters that this short passage I'm looking at today is the capstone or climax of 11 chapters of the most wonderful doctrine in the Word of God. We heard a marvelous testimony just the other day from a new member applicant who talked about the impact of Romans upon her life and how it awakened things that she had known and yet not quite connected. And reading Romans and working through it was just like an explosion of meaning and spiritual truth. So hoping that you have some idea what has been in Romans up till now, and that's all I can help you with at the moment, I read for you Romans 11 starting at 33, as Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable, unknowable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Oh God, give us Your light on this great declaration of the Apostle. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm one of those strange people who thinks it is a genuine tragedy that almost no schools, other than maybe a few private schools these days, teach Latin anymore. With apologies to any of you who are English teachers, I learned more English grammar from two years of Latin than I ever learned in English class. I learned more of the vocabulary words that permeate all levels of the English language from Latin. 
And actually, whether or not you've ever studied that language, I believe you might know more Latin and be able to translate more than you think you do. I'd emphasize that this way. As we try to summarize the important events and doctrines behind the Protestant Reformation, beginning roughly in 1517, although it didn't begin in one single moment, you probably know that we like to emphasize five great truths that are seen in the Reformation then uphold the actions of the Reformation the way these pillars uphold the balcony of our sanctuary. And they're summarized by their Latin expressions. Sola Scriptura is the first of them. Scripture alone as the source of authority for all truth about God and His Word. Not the counsels of men, not any individual, no matter how learned, Scripture alone as the source of our authority. Secondly came sola gratia, grace alone, telling us that God, not man, is the great originator of all things, creation, but also our salvation. And He, in the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, authored salvation. Thirdly, and maybe this is the best known to many people, is sola fide, the idea of justification by grace through faith. It's through faith that man takes hold of that great salvation of God, not by buying an indulgence ticket sold by a bishop. That's what Luther was so excited about was the indulgences, the practice of selling people something and saying, here, pay $30 and your relative will spring out of purgatory. What a ridiculous expense that is when there is no purgatory to begin with. But sola fide, faith, is how we take hold of Christ and His salvation. Fourthly, solus Christus tells us that God in Christ and Christ alone is the Savior and mediator. Not any man, not any priest who stands and says, I absolve you of sin. No man has authority to do that. Jesus Christ absolves us of sin. No one else. No one else is a mediator between God and man. Not Mary, not the saints, not anyone else. Jesus alone. And then finally, what we come to today, and the words that I believe are exalted in this text I've read, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, which really summarizes the whole movement of the Reformation. Now, if you followed me, you actually recognized more Latin than you thought. The morning quiz is over, but you did well, I think, as you thought your way through those phrases. Now, here's the Apostle Paul ending his extraordinary letter. Well, you say, wait a minute, there's a few more chapters, but he was ending the the real doctrinal part. Many practical things that are valuable from God, of course, in chapters 12 and following, but this epic, it was like him climbing a mountain, and he had reached the pinnacle of the mountain for the doctrine of salvation, starting out in chapter 1, talking about how human beings only deserve the wrath of God, and yet there was a righteousness that wasn't earned by human beings. It was the gift of God through Jesus Christ. The middle of chapter 3, exploding that truth, leaving us lost and hopeless for a while there. But then, but God, but there is a righteousness from God, Romans 3.21 begins to say, and then unfolds the wonders of this salvation. Paul reached the, the end of that great emotional outpouring 
And I think he was wrung out like a dishrag. I believe he was mentally and emotionally spent. And maybe he stood back for a moment and, and flipped back through the pages that his pen had, had written and then came back again and, and thought, what do I say next? And that all I have to say now is a song of praise and exultation. I can hardly believe that God, by His Spirit, gave these things through my poor mind, through my pen. I can't believe what I've written. It had to be from God. He was amazed at his own words. And he said in Romans eleven thirty three, Who has known the mind of the Lord? I sure haven't. Who has been his counselor? I'm not. For from him, through him, to him are all things to God be the glory forever. Amen. The theme I draw for you today is not only Paul's theme, I hope it is, but it's also the theme of Luther and Calvin and Knox and Tyndale and so many others who were agreeing with and building upon what Paul had to say here in Romans. In essence, the Reformation was saying this, no people ever rise any higher than their concept of God. If you have a wrong concept of God, you'll be wrong completely. The heart of the 16th century Reformation was a rediscovery of the enormity and splendor of the Bible's God. He had gotten lost somehow. Yes, there were churches and people went in and out of them, but they were not confronted with the immensity of God or a God who who required righteousness but also gave the righteousness that he required rather than requiring us to perform it. Rediscovering the grandeur of the Bible's God, bottom line, was the great theme of the Reformation. First of all, today I want to show you that the biblical phrase, soli deo gloria, compels us to see God's glory wherever it is most obviously displayed. Now, there isn't any way that we can give God more of something called glory. In fact, most of us would scratch our heads and say, well, what is it? How would I give it to him? I'm not sure I can even define it. The Bible on various occasions says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's, Let's make God large among us. Are we actually making God larger? Aren't we really doing what the astronomer does with his telescope when he maybe focuses on the planet Venus or something and and brings it into view in larger detail so that we can be fascinated and study the, the details of planet Venus? We haven't made Venus larger, but we've made it visible with that telescope. We've allowed ourselves to be to wonder at it and to say, my goodness, that, that's a marvelous thing. We don't actually make God larger when we magnify him, bring him into view. We just enlarge our own minds and our own understanding of him. You know, some people might think when we say we bring God glory, well, maybe God needs a, a recharge every once in a while. And, you know, like my cell phone, if I don't charge it for two, three days, all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, I can't make a call. My phone's dead. Does God need a recharge of glory that needs to be brought to him by creatures who don't even know what glory is? I don't think so. But what we need is a larger view of God to understand him, 
to understand that maybe the best definition we can even give to glory is to say it's everything that God is that we are not. I don't actually know of a better definition of glory. Everything God is that we are not. The glory of God, of course, is seen in the natural creation, and you can look for him there, and that's a legitimate place to look. Psalm 19 says the heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Nature's a fantastic theater to see God at work. It's not the only place. If you stop there, the Bible says you haven't looked far enough, but definitely look there. Study the heavens. I don't know how, I I do not understand how you can be an astronomer and be an atheist. Don't understand it. One course I always wish I'd taken in college was an elective in, uh, I wasn't a science major, but if, if I'd had another science elective, I would have said astronomy. But I hope it wouldn't have been taught by somebody that says, look at these fantastic things, black holes, star systems, unbelievable arrays of things, and just told me, well, that was just a bunch of dust collected in an interesting way. Oh, my goodness. How can you be an astronomer and not praise the glory of God? How can you study, as we've been able to only in our recent generations, the strands of DNA that make us all different as we are or make one creature different from another? And now we can identify even, you know, the subdivisions of DNA. I can't explain these things. It's proper science. You know, when I come to those things, I say, how how inscrutable. You noticed our Bible word, unknowable. This is too deep. It's too high. It's too wide. It's too fantastic. I can't take it in. Who but God made this? And we see that in the natural creation, but that's not all we see. We also have God speaking in his word, and we can marvel over the wonders of his word. And I'm not even developing that one, not that it isn't wonderful. And not that we can avoid encountering the marvels of God in his word, but I want to go on to one other place where we see him, of course, in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 is Paul speaking. Verse 15, he says, Christ is the image, the visible image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. By him, all things were created. And then Paul goes on, 119 in Colossians In Christ, I mean, this phrase has got to blow you out of the water. All the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. You know, I'm I'm trying to plan right now, what am I going to preach in the Christmas season? And any preacher who's been at it for decades will tell you Christmas is a hard time because you kind of have to say the same thing again and again and again. And you said that years ago. But wait a minute. What am I saying? What I'm going to be telling you in the Christmas season is one variation or, or from some text that says all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Christ in a human body. Can that theme ever get tired or, or be exhausted? My goodness. It's worth every word we can say and, and every way we can ponder over it. It's a great diamond that we keep turning over to see another facet we haven't seen before. God glorifies himself by being who he is, showing us what he has made in the material universe, speaking in Scripture, and best of all, by what he has done in extending salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The writers of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a consequence of the Reformation coming about a century later, understood this, and they sat down to write a catechism, to question and answer version of theology. And you've met, most of you heard this before. They, the great first question is, what is the chief end of man? For what purpose does mankind exist? That's the biggest question you could possibly ask. And their answer was, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not just in this life to glorify him in our lives, but forever we're going to be glorifying him. There'll be a day when we are glorying in God in a visible manner. The Bible says eventually as perfected souls we will see him face to face. And we won't go to church and say, oh, hurry up, we've got to get to church. It starts at 11 o'clock so we can go worship. We'll be worshiping as we breathe the native air of heaven. That's the only thing people will be doing is worshiping God. Now, don't get the idea you're sitting in a pew with a hymn book in your lap. We can't imagine it, actually. It, it just doesn't compute with our brains what it means to live in an atmosphere where we will see the glory of God in the face of his Son and worship forever face to face. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, we shall never enjoy ourselves fully until we enjoy God eternally. So we're still moving in hope toward that. But God's glory must be looked for and, and adored wherever it is most obviously displayed, and that's in the creation, in the Word of God, and in Christ himself. Now, secondly, we only partially understand what glory is right now. But I believe that this, the Reformation slogan of soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, calls us to a daily awareness that we live before and under the gaze of the true living God. Either we're bringing him praise and seeking to know and obey him and honor him in our lives, or we're living against him and rebelling against him and dragging his name down in the mud by our pride, our laziness, our lusts, and our worldliness. The Reformation theme, soli deo gloria, means this, that who God is and what Christ has done has to regulate and permeate every action of our daily lives. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So you can glorify God by cooking dinner and doing an excellent job of it, by doing your math homework and doing an excellent job. I, that's my problem. I never did the math homework in an excellent way, so I ended up a preacher. You, see. <laughs> you can glorify God by performing surgery, by working on an assembly line, by making a quality automobile that you're proud to go out and say, I helped make that, by waiting on a customer, by caring for an elderly relative with love and compassion. You see, there's so many ways in just living our lives that we glorify God by becoming what he wants us to become and how he made us in the first place. Luther had another, he, you know, they, they spoke a lot of Latin in those days. And Luther threw in another phrase that you need to know. It's just two words, so it's not too hard. Coram Deo. 
Do you know that phrase? Coram Deo. It means living consciously in the presence of God. Conscious that God is my Father and my Creator, and He's looking upon me, and my life is either pleasing Him or displeasing Him. But I'm under His eye. I'm aware of Him, and I want to respond to Him so that every department of my life and every energy at my disposal is given to the glory of God. Now, it's really unfortunate that time doesn't allow me more than a couple minutes to, to mention a whole generation of people that, that came along for a century or more after the Reformation as its immediate heirs who in their lives took all that to heart, coram Deo, that they lived their lives before God and sought to do so with great energy and great effort and, and great scholarship and great devotion. I hope I don't disappoint you when I tell you that generation of people are called the Puritans. Ugh. You know why you say, uh? Because you've let Nathaniel Hawthorne and his like tell you what the Puritans were. Long-nosed, negative people who, if they saw anybody having fun, said, stop it. That was not what the Puritans were, not at all. J.I. Packer, pick up his book about the Puritans. It will give you wonderful understanding that you don't get from secular history. Packer called them great souls serving a greater God. They lived for about a hundred years beyond the Reformation or more, depending on exactly when their, their generation stopped is a debatable subject. But the Puritans were people who worshipped God in everything they did, whether they were writing a novel. Did you know the first published author, uh, as a poet that is, the first published poet on American soil was a Puritan woman who was basically a homemaker. That's what she thought she was her whole life. Until after death, they pulled out all her journals and there was some of it published during her life. Anne Bradstreet, a New England woman who wrote wonderful poetry. A Puritan woman, imagine it. Did you know that the first great modern novel was, or at least many will say, was Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe? A Puritan, Daniel Defoe wrote it. Do you have any knowledge at all of the great writings of a John Owen or a Richard Baxter or John Bunyan or Newton or so many others? These people breathed Christ. They exalted Christ and the gospel, but they did a lot more than that. They passed laws. They structured governments based on what they saw as biblical principles of the balance of powers, the separation of powers so that the judiciary and the legislature and the executive would, would not any one of them be able to take over from the other. That came from the Puritans, folks. They educated their children as far as they could. There are some 75 colleges were founded before the Civil War in America by people who were direct heirs of the Reformation and the Puritans. Seventy-five colleges. Take those away, and America would be a miserably ignorant place today. They exalted marriage. They said, look, this medieval idea that celibacy in the monastery are the way everybody ought to live if they were really living right. No! God loves marriage. He made it to be enjoyed and exalted. They did so many things. They founded colleges and hospitals and orphanages. J.I. Packer said the Puritans were like the giant redwoods out there in California, and we are all little twigs by comparison spiritually. The point is, the Puritans served a big God. 
Yes, there were some of them that got a little bent out of shape in a negative direction, but by far they were a minority. We inherit from them and from the Reformers a Christian worldview that said we need to take our whole culture captive. Did you know that modern science was largely influenced by people with Reformation and Puritan influences made upon them? Blaise Pascal, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, go find out about these people, saw in God's beautiful orderly universe something to be better understood. And the development of science came from that. They were saying what our text says, that from him, through him, to him, are all things, star constellations, making dinner, exploring higher mathematics, medicine, you name it, marriage, child raising. They said we have a cultural mandate to live coram Deo before the face of God in everything we do. And so that comes to our challenge in closing today. The challenge is for us to live daily for God's glory. Many of us can remember well Francis Schaeffer in the 1960s. A man, somebody thought he was a bit of an oddball. He was an American minister, went over and worked in Switzerland and came back and ever after wore his knickers and his cape. And everybody said, what, what's with you? What's this strange costume you're, you're wearing? You look European. You don't look American anymore. Schaefer didn't care what he looked like. He was coming preaching the Reformation, big God. The God who leaves no compartment of life where I may say, I am autonomous here. God is not. And Schaefer's film series that many of you can remember from the 1970s Pose the question in its title, which is a biblical question. How shall we then live? How shall we live in light of what we know about God and what he has done? There's no room for indifference about this. If you're not bowing before Coram Deo, living your life before God, then you're not serving him. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He either loves one or hates the other. He will hold to one or despise the other. God had said through Isaiah, Isaiah 48, I will not yield my glory to another. Choose. Will you acknowledge me? Will you live your life to bring glory to me? Many of you, if you're a musician at all, you probably know that Johann Sebastian Bach was an heir of the Reformation, consciously living Coram Deo, and he put on many of his compositions, if not all, I'm not sure exactly what proportion, but many of his musical writings. Bach wrote at the end, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria. If this music gets any glory at all, let it be God's. Let it be God who made music. Folks, maybe you can tell I get a little bit worked up about how the Reformation and the Puritans and these things have been shunted aside and thrown on the trash heap by our modern society. There was a 20th century preacher named A.W. Tozer. He wasn't a Presbyterian. He was a very wise man. Tozer wrote very prophetically in the 1950s. Here's what he said, several sentences. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it ideas that are so lowly as to be utterly unworthy of any thinking people. He said this low man-shaped God, with a small g, was substituted in the churches of Christ 
little by little, almost unnoticed until one day, the mighty Jehovah, the Lord God of hosts, was gone completely from their assemblies. And Tozer said, with him we lost the sense of divine majesty, religious awe, and reverence in the divine presence. He said, the words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing today in our jangling assemblies that are called worship. And he concluded, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Did you hear that? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Echoing that and the whole Reformation concept of soli deo gloria, I say to you, no people will ever rise higher than their concept of God. Will we be big God people? Or will we follow some little pygmy God made of our own shaping and our own low expectations? People with a great God accomplish courageous things which for them begin only as matters of simple faithfulness. Luther did not think he was launching a world revolution when he tacked up a debate notice on the door of the church. He just thought he was going to get a couple scholars or a bishop or somebody to talk to him and debate. And he started a huge boulder rolling downhill that gathered momentum because he was faithful. Will we determine to join Reformers and Puritans and so many others who woke up the church, recovered the heart of the phrase, soli deo gloria? Will we both in worship on Sunday morning and even more importantly perhaps in our everyday lives let our lives exclaim, oh, the depths of the height of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's past finding out. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and unto him are all things, folks. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, you shook this world 500 years ago. It sure needs shaking. Will you work through us in what area, whatever area of life we've been called, whether scientist or homemaker, corporate head or waiter in a restaurant, preacher, farmer, carpenter, whatever you've called us to do, oh God, would you give us this lasting vision of yourself and let us spend and be spent to serve you, the biggest God and the only God there is. For Jesus' sake, amen.